prayer and uh, get started with our topic for tonight. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness. We thank you for uh, the, uh, the miracle of incarnation and all that it uh, means to us, making salvation possible, making a, a permanent uh, uh, manifestation of the glory of God in bodily form with which we will dwell forever. And Lord, we do uh, thank you for all that is embedded in this doctrine that we're going to look at tonight. Lord, I ask that we would uh, gain a greater appreciation of what was done at that first Christmas and, uh, and uh, have a richer season for it. In your name, amen. Okay, so you can see here in front of you that I have this, it's called the Jesus of Faith, that's what I've called it. Um, it if you went through uh, my Christology class, you actually got this in, well, this is a condensed form, but uh, so we'll, so if you, you may have heard a little bit of this before, uh, but uh, I think it's good stuff to review. So, so what we're, we're looking at here is the, the incarnation. And so we're looking here at what happened really at Christ, Christmas, at Christmas time in terms of theology. Uh, so what, who is Jesus? What is Jesus what is so special about him? What are, what are some of the ins and outs of what happened on that very first uh, Christmas day? And uh, start with a quote here from C.S. Lewis, of course popular because of his role in producing the Chronicles of Narnia, but also a uh, philosopher, theologian in his own right. He wrote this, The person of Christ is not the sort of thing with which one can be moderately interested. Either he is not who he claimed to be and should be ignored or exposed for the liar and fraud that he is, or he is who he claimed to be, and we must make it the very most fundamental goal of our existence to make our peace with him. There really is no inter, in, in, in middle ground, and this, this like expansive idea out there uh, that, that sort of puts Jesus sort of in the middle, that Jesus was sort of a noble humanitarian idealist. Uh, this really isn't a valid option. Uh, either he is all that he says he is in the Christian scripture, or he is none of it and uh, should be ignored. And obviously I'm going with the, he is <laughs> what, he, uh, what he claimed to be. And for that reason, we really need it to, to make it the goal of our life, our lives to be right with him uh, because of who he is and what he's done. I want to start here by talking about what Christ was before. Uh, Christmas came about, and I want to talk briefly here about the pre-existence of Christ. Uh, most biographies I say here uh, of, of people begin with their birth. But the biography of Jesus begins much earlier. It really begins with his eternal pre-existence. He has always been. Jesus existed long ago, even before the creation week. He was not part of the created order. He is the creator. And this fact is made necessary uh, by his eternal, necessary participation in an immutable or changeless trinity. The triune God has always been triune, and Jesus Christ, uh, the second person of the Godhead, has always been. He's also active in creation. We find that by him all things hold together. All, by him all things consist. There is one God and Father by whom are all things and one Son, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. So Jesus Christ has always been. Uh, the second person of the Trinity has always been a, a partner, uh, a, a part of uh, the divine Godhead. And so we find here not only is this necessary by what he has done, but also by plain statements of Scripture. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning, was the Word, capital W, clearly a reference in context to Jesus Christ. This Word was with God, and this Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Probably a deliberate attempt here by John to start his gospel in the exact same way Genesis 1, 1 starts. Okay. So in the beginning, God, Genesis 1, 1. Here, in the beginning, the Word. In the beginning, Christ, if I, if I may, in so many words. Uh, but this is not the only text, of course, that teaches that Christ has always been. John the Baptist taught it uh, when he is announcing 
the, uh, the arrival of Jesus, he announces that he existed before me. Despite the fact that we know that John the Baptist is older by six months, right? Remember when, uh, when Mary meets with her cousin, Elizabeth, and, uh, you know, Elizabeth's great with child. She's, she's, she's near, near to giving birth, and the baby leaped within her womb uh, when Mary comes into her presence, their presence. And so uh, he's, he's actually six months older. In, in terms of natural birth, and yet he says that Jesus existed before me. He says the same thing in John chapter 3. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And so all of these references here indicate that Jesus had a prior existence uh, to his earthly existence and was sent, came, uh, from that, from that uh, place uh, to the place where he is there as a human. Jesus Christ also announced that he was preexistent. John 3, 13, same chapter here. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Clearly in context, again, an indi- a, a, a reference to himself. I, I'm the only one who's actually ever been up there. I came from there. I descended from heaven. I came down from heaven, he says, on multiple occasions. In chapter 6, chapter 8, he makes this stunning statement here, uh, stunning on more than one count. He says here, before Abraham was, I am, which is not just a statement that he existed before Abraham. If, If he were simply saying that, he would say, before Abraham was, I am also was, right? (laughs) But he doesn't. He actually needles his opponents further by actually using this this name that God uses of himself. Remember when Moses asked, "Who, who, who shall I send tell Pharaoh has sent me? And what's the answer? I am. Okay, and so Jesus is deliberately using this phrase to indicate that he is, in fact, this Yahweh God, he is the I am. Okay, and so it's undoubtedly a claim to equality with God, and apparently his hearers understood it this way because they immediately accuse him of blasphemy. Okay. John 17, glorify me, he says in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Same prayer, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is something that is said of believers, too. You know, we, we understand that election, electing love uh, occurs within the Godhead uh, before, uh, before time began. But this necessarily implies something more that in, in, in the relationship of the Father to the Son. Paul indicates this as well. Philippians 2 Uh, He existed prior to his incarnation in the form of God. That's how Nasby puts it here. This term here is morphe. Uh, You you, you understand a lot of English words with that that root, right? Refers to the essential qualities that make something what it is. The NIV captures this nuance very well by translating the phrase this way. God is being in his very nature God. So Paul is saying that Jesus existed as God before he existed as a servant in the form of man on earth. Here's what Warfield says. Form is a term that expresses the sum of those characterizing qualities that make a thing the precise thing that it is. Thus the form of a sword, in this case mostly matters of external configuration, is all that makes a given piece of metal specifically a sword rather than say a spade. And the form of God is the sum of those characteristics which make the being that we call God, specifically God, rather than some other being, an angel, say, or a man. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore he is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is and to possess the whole fullness of the attributes which make God, God. So Paul says, 
that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation in the form of God. Colossians 1, by him were all things created in heaven and earth, things under the earth. He is before all things. And I think that before probably has not, not just to do with time. He is you know, temporally prior to all things, but also that he's ahead of everything in terms of rank and authority. Uh, he is, he is the, as the creator, he is before all things in both senses. Okay? Um, and Christ, of course, is the one who is creating, which implies his preexistence as God as well, because God is the creator. Uh, Hebrews 7, Melchizedek is described here as without father or mother, without genealogy, and with, uh, without beginning of days or end of like, life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now there's a lot of intrigue here with Melchizedek. Some actually suggest he may be some sort of a, an Old Testament temporary manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm not inclined that way. Nonetheless, the point of comparing Jesus with Melchizedek is because we don't know where Melchizedek come from. He just sort of pops on the scene. There is no record of his parentage, uh, where he comes from. Um, and so he just sort of pops on the scene. And in that way, Jesus is like him. Okay? Uh, he, 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 just, he, he pops on the scene. And, it is, and, and in, this, in this case, with Jesus, there, it's because there is no father, there is no mother, per se. Nobody can read the canonical scriptures and conclude other than that both Christ and the writers of scripture all affirmed that Christ existed before he came to earth as a baby. Now, some doubt, of course, the validity of scripture, but anybody who reads the scripture and accepts it for what it says, can come to no other conclusion than that Jesus Christ uh, had a pre-existence prior to his coming to earth as a little baby. Okay, so that's the pre-existence. Any questions here? I've got basically four points here. The last one's pretty, pretty quick, but uh, any thoughts, uh, please, uh, please interrupt. I, I don't mind interruptions. I, I'll, I'll keep... I'll keep droning if you don't. But, uh, but, uh, but if you have a question, yes? Now, there are some people that I've dealt with that believe Melchizedek was Christ. I mean, mm -hmm. just a, I yeah. say he was a form of Christ, but uh, yeah, so there's belief out there that he was Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. of course. You know, and it never made sense to me. I didn't really explain it probably the, the best I've heard. You know, yeah. Come on the scene. And, yeah, it is. It is and it, it, I, I guess it's theoretically possible that this was Jesus. I just, I just don't think there's enough pieces here to, to, to conclude that with any certainty. I'm inclined to think he's just some, someone that, to, with whom we make an analogy of, of Christ. But there's some good people who've taken that view over the years, so it's, it's not something that's just way out there weird. Especially when you got him, he was a rock that one time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The incarnation of Christ then. So an incarnation comes from the Latin word, which means enfleshment. You can see the word carne in there. Carnivore, meat, meat eater. A carnivore is a meat eater. So you know, he, literally he takes meat onto himself. So he's enfleshed. He, he takes on a body. So it's the enfleshment of God. The act whereby the second person of the Trinity is permanently embodied in human nature, flesh, or form. Now, apparently there are some appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Whether Melchizedek was one, we do know that there are appearances of the divine in the Old Testament. We have this angel of Yahweh that shows up. Somebody was walking with, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we find elsewhere in the scripture that no one at any time has ever seen the Father, the Son has made him known. Okay, so uh, the conclusion we sort of have to draw then is whenever we see some sort of a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament in personal form, that this is in fact a, a, a pre, I call it pre-incarnate uh, 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 appearance of Jesus Christ. I say pre-incarnate because I'm not doubting that there was an enfleshed form, 
but it's not permanent. That's what I mean when I say pre-incarnate. It's, it's before his incarnation becomes permanent, which is what happens here uh, at Christmas time. Okay? The incarnation is a foundational doctrine of Christianity. It goes back to the more fundamental doctrine of Christianity, which is the Trinity. There could be no incarnation without a trinity, and there could be no salvation without the incarnation. It's really important, okay, that Christ is God come in the flesh. Why is this so important? Well, there had to be a perfect and sinless substitute to pay the penalty of sin and be the Savior of mankind. We're going to see that later on, that, it, that the sin that Adam committed could only be resolved by a human death, okay, and because uh, that, that's the penalty for human sin is human death. So it's either your death or someone else's who takes your place. In this case, Jesus Christ. That perfect substitute had to be divine in order to be a proper object of worship and faith. Again, we, we, we dabble a little bit with some speculation here, but the, sometimes we ask, could Adam have succeeded? Could the first Adam have succeeded and obeyed perfectly and, uh, you know, been a good representative for us? And, yeah, it, the Bible never says, right? Uh, is it possible that Adam could have obeyed? But this, there, there's, there seems to be at least a reasonable argument here that had he obeyed as a representative for us all, we would be looking to Adam as our Savior, and, and he is not, as I say here, a proper object of worship and faith. And so, therefore, we, we need someone other than Adam to look at as our Savior, and Jesus Christ fits the bill. Thirdly here, this perfect substitute had to be human in order to suitably represent man to God. Uh, there's this ancient plea that was made by Job, chapter 9. Uh, when he is complaining, uh, we can even go there if you want, but uh, Job is complaining here that uh, he's being treated somewhat unfairly. Uh, he's, he's, all these terrible things are happening to him. He's never, he's never done anything wrong. Of course, all of his friends are saying, yes, you did, you did. You, you might not know what it is, but you did. And, and so he, he comes back and he gets a little bit sharp here in some of his, his response here. Let me see if I can't find it here. Verse 32, God is not a man like me that I might answer him. So I, I, I can't have a conversation with God to make my case. We cannot confront one another in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, someone who can lay his hand on both of us, someone who can understand God as God and understand me as human, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror does not frighten me any longer, then I could speak up without fear. But as it stands now, I can't. You know, I, I, there, there's no one to represent me before God. And so therefore, I'm, treated, I'm being treated unfairly. Now, we could, we could quibble about uh, some of his conclusions here, but, but the complaint is, is a legitimate one. I, I wish there was a way that I could have a conversation with my accuser the one who is punishing me, the one who is letting these terrible things happen to me, at least to have a conversation and ask what's going on. But there's no way to do that because God is not like me. He doesn't show up as a human. And so, uh, so that, and, and this is, I mean, this is the complaint of mankind from, from eternity, uh, ever, well, ever since the fall, right? And uh, it's not until we come to First Timothy, that we have this statement here, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, someone who can lay his hands on both of us, the man Christ Jesus, okay? And so now we have what, what Job was looking for, someone who can actually represent him before God. Okay, so this perfect substitute had to be human in order to be a suitable mediator. But God, as God, cannot die. One of his attributes, right, is immortality. God can't die. Nor could he send his son into the world apart from a triunity or a very minimum, a plurality in the Godhead. So, so there has to be, there has to be some sort of, there has to be some sort of division within the Trinity that allows God to send God. Okay? So all of this comes down to the need here 
for an incarnate God, an incarnate form of God. And so we find this in the incarnation. Now we should not confuse this with the origin or beginning of Christ. Christ doesn't begin here. He's eternal. It's not as though God the Son was born in Bethlehem or we received his sonship at this time. Okay. In fact, most Protestants have been a little bit squeamish about using the language of Mary being the mother of God. We understand, if, if you let me explain that, I can get away with saying that because there is a sense in which Jesus, the fullness of God, dwells in him in bodily form. And so when Mary bore Jesus, there is a sense in which we could get away with saying that God is somehow wrapped up in what's going on here. Uh, but we should never think of Jesus being born as God. God was not born at this point. Okay, The incarnate form of God was born at this point. Uh, uh, and not and not God Himself, and so Mary. I, I most Protestants have have hesitated to use that kind of language of Mary being the mother of God. Okay, it's, it's really a mess the way it is because mm -hmm. the Catholics really hold Mary up as deity. Yeah, she does yeah, sort of become quasi deity. Kind of kick her under the rug, so to say. Um, yeah. Know, Maybe. I, I, I've never really known anybody to kick her under the rug, but I, <laughs> I know that's, 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 that's the claim that's often made, but I, I've just never known anybody who just had disdain for Mary. But, but, we, but we really don't hold her up, it seems, as, you know, and the Catholics go overboard one day. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, cer certainly they, they go... Yeah, cer certainly they go overboard. That's that's no question there. I I I I, I know it's it's sort of become something of a of a of a thing for us to say. Yeah, we we treat Mary badly, and I'm just not sure we do. <laughs> but 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 be that as it may, we 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 don't we don't want to disdain her. But she's not the mother of God in the sense that she is somehow responsible for the existence of God as God. Right. Yeah, and they would always deny it, but you're right. It, uh, they, they do yeah. sort of end up with a quasi-divine figure. Right. Yeah. Yes, right. So we find here that, uh, in fact, that some of the language that is used in the, in the, especially the New Testament, is very interesting if, in fact, God popped into, the second person of the Godhead popped into being at this point. This language makes no sense. But notice how the, there, in fact, there's only one occasion in the whole New Testament where we actually see the, the word became, that God became man. That's in John 1. Yeah, uh, uh, um, the, uh, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, and so, so that's the only place in the whole New Testament where where Jesus become uh, that that God becomes man. In every other case, there's evasive language here used, and it makes sense in, as we as we understand it theologically. He became flesh. He came down from heaven. He was made the seed of David. He was sent in the likeness of flesh. He sent his son in order to become of a woman. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, found in a fashion as a man. He was made lower than the angels. Literally, he was diminished from what he was to what he became. He partook of flesh and blood. He was made like unto his brethren. He was given a body. He was manifested. All, all of these terms indicate that he has a prior existence and he shows up in physical form. And uh, the, the language here is just incredible that is used throughout the New Testament. So the fact of the incarnation is, is well established here. But now we come to this rather curious thing in the, uh, in the New Testament, and that's the... Uh, the virgin birth. 
and I have down here the method of incarnation, and we'll explain why that is so important to us. Um, first, we want to establish that it's true, and then we'll, we'll try and figure out why. So in the birth narratives, we find two passages, one in Matthew, one in Luke, both talk about extensively about the birth of Christ. Both of them call Mary a virgin, which is a the word parthenos here. Uh, there actually are two words for that are used sometimes here. Uh, in fact, part of the problem is that in Isaiah 7, uh, there is a, there's a, a, a word used that could mean young woman, and so the some have suggested, okay, this is just a, a young woman of marriable age. Uh, but the, the Greek word here that's used, the Hebrew word is a little bit inconclusive, but the Greek word here used in the New Testament is not. It, 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 it's, it's very plain. It has to be someone who has never has had sexual relationships. Okay? Both, in fact, not only use the word, but they actually specify that Mary and Joseph had not yet consummated their marriage. Matthew 1.18, Jesus' mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, of course, euphemism for the sexual relation, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Luke 1 says something similar. Mary was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph and replied to the news that she was pregnant by saying this, how can this be since I have never been intimate with a man? I think uh, NIV says, I've never known a man, but we've, we've, made it, we've, we've made it so euphemistic that we perhaps lose sight of what's being said. And it's very clear, and that's why I use the Christian Standard Version here, because I've, I've never had sexual relationships with any man. So it's, it's not possible for me to be pregnant. Both passages explain the conception of Christ as a creative act of the Spirit, an angel of the Lord appeared in Matthew to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Luke 1 also attributes this to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow and you will get pregnant. And the Holy One to be born in from you will be called the Son of God. And then even the genealogies indicate that the baby's father was not, Moses, uh, was not Joseph. Uh, Matthew 1.16, uh, there's this whole list of, of names here. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Uh, you, you would expect him to say, okay, and, you know, and, you know, and, and so you know, Joseph was the father of Jesus, but no. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Something similar in Luke 3.23. This one actually does the genealogy the other, in reverse order here. So Jesus is the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Haley, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, etc., etc., etc. Okay, and so we find here uh, that, uh, that uh, even in these genealogies, uh, there's, there's care taken to, to, to make sure we understand that Joseph is not Jesus' father. He has no human father. During Jesus' youth, this apparently came up, it apparently got around, that Mary was using this excuse, or so it seemed. No, 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 I didn't do anything. I'm having a baby, but I didn't do anything. And you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an age-old excuse that does, doesn't fly, right? We know it doesn't work that way, right? But she, here she's sticking with her story, and probably the people around were just guffawing at her. Of course you had relations with a man. That's the only way you can get pregnant. And, and so she's probably, she's probably ridiculed for this. And uh, we find that it shows up in some of these stories, stories here. When Jesus' parents saw Jesus teaching the religious leaders in the temple, this is when he's 12 years old, right? Becoming of age. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, Jesus says? Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Okay. Now, it almost sounds a little snarky here, but, and, and 
because we know it can't be, we recognize it isn't here. But what he's, he's giving a gentle corrective to his mother. When he comes of age as an adult, at age 12, this was a very important age for, for, for the Jew, he says, I'm, I'm beginning to be about my father's business. And mom, I, I have great respect for Joseph, but Joseph isn't my dad. You know, my father wasn't looking for me. <laughs> my father knows exactly where I am, and I'm about his business. Jesus' teaching, John, John 6, the Jews began to grumble because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? We know his parents. He didn't come down from heaven. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And then his enemies ridicule him because of this excuse that Mary made. John 8, after Jesus appeals to his Father... For the legitimacy of his message, they ask him, where is your father? I mean, common parlance, who's your daddy? And the implication is, you don't even know who your dad is. Mary has this story that not, nothing happened. And you don't even know who, who your dad is. They make this clear in verse 41. Jesus says to the Jews, you are doing the things your father does. And they respond, they snap back. We're not illegitimate children, like you. That's implied. Same, same paragraph. Apparently there was a theory that was floated that Mary had been raped by a Samaritan man. And so the Jews answered again, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Probably a local theory about who Jesus' real dad was. The fact is, that the fact that Jesus was born out of wedlock couldn't be hidden. It was no doubt a matter of much speculation locally. It was possible, too, that Mary's insistence that she was a virgin circulated as well, eliciting scorn. No doubt Jesus faced much ridicule for his virgin birth as he grew up. So, so I mean, we, we've sanitized the idea of a virgin birth, but I realize that this is, this is, this is something of a distasteful idea. And, and, and Jesus takes a lot of flack for it. And it's for that reason, then, we're going to say there's probably something more to this than just some miracle that Jesus did, that, that God did to affirm his child. There must be some sort of a theologically important reason that God did it this way uh, uh, as opposed to some other way. It must have been, there must be some theological necessity uh, why this virgin birth took place. Okay, Paul affirms the uh, virginity of Mary as well. So why is this important? Well, if any miracle at all could have set Christ apart from his human brothers, it seems odd that God would have chosen this miracle, one that is so distastefully misrepresented that made Christ a victim of unnecessary ridicule. Why, why, why this miracle, if any miracle, would do? Most Christians, therefore, conclude that there's some sort of a theological reason why the virgin birth was necessary. So that's to say that a denial of the virgin birth is not merely a denial of what the scriptures say, but actually an incidence of skepticism about the Bible's message. More is at stake here than just a mistake. Now, there's some, there's some funny ideas about why the virgin birth is important, and I want to set a couple of those aside here before we uh, come to the, 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 the more apparent reason. Some have suggested that men, that is males, are more sinful than women, or that men alone are sin carriers. And this is naive. Um, usually this is this can be traced to somebody who didn't pay attention in seminary when this was being explained. Um, but uh, all persons, male and female, are infected by sin. Okay, so we're all carriers, okay, men and women alike. 
Christ could not have avoided the effects of sin simply by not having a dad. Number one. Secondly, there's also a biological theory that's persisted, and uh, there's a fellow by the name of M.R. Dehan who started Our Daily Bread. Uh, good guy, but not a trained theologian. He was, he was a medical doctor, I believe, uh, but uh, had this burden for, you know, for people having their devotions, and he put together this, uh, this, this idea, still used, and so I, I don't want to denigrate it as him as a, as a total idiot. Uh, but I think he, he came, as a, as a medical doctor, he came up with a theory, a medical theory, as to why the virgin birth was necessary. And this is what he said here. He said that blood derives genetically, independently of its mother within a fetus. And so Jesus' blood was not human, but divine. Okay. So, and it, and it is something of a, of a curiosity that uh, you could have a different blood type than your mother. It's, that's remarkable, right? Uh, you can have your father's blood type. You can inherit that. Even though you're in your mom's womb for nine months, you can actually have a different blood type than your mom, which, it, which is sort of a, an interesting thing. And so he posited then that the blood that Jesus got was actually not from his mom at all. His blood came from his, his heavenly father. And so that's why it's precious blood. So it's not just ordinary blood, it's special blood, it's divine blood. And so you, and so you have, uh, for instance, in the, uh, the Passion of the Christ, if you ever watched the movie, you have Mary trying to gather the blood because this is, this is special blood. This is, you know, you touch it, something happens to you. And there's theories even that there is a pot of blood, that all of the blood that Jesus, that Jesus uh, shed during his earthly time, was actually collected and brought up to heaven where it's a pot, there's a pot of it, and, and so uh, the sprinkling of the blood takes place because all of it was collected. There's something in those corpuscles, you know, the, 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 the substance of that blood that actually is, has saving power. So what's wrong with this theory? Well, first, the theory is biologically or medically incorrect. So while it's true that the genetic coding of a fetus blood his blood type may differ from his mother's. She still supplies the substance of the blood. And the fact is, Jesus may have had his mother's blood type, and I'm, I'm probably going to guess that he did, because that's the only place he got, could have gotten blood from, from his mom. It's not as though a biological father is wholly responsible for his, mother, for his child's blood. Okay? But more importantly, this theory is theologically problematic. If, in fact, Christ's blood is not completely human, that it's divine, then Jesus himself is not entirely human. He is not like his brothers in every way, which is what Hebrews 2 says has to be the case. This is an instance, in fact, of the historical heresy known as Apollinarianism, that Jesus was incompletely human, that he was partly God and partly human. So if that's not the reason or the reasons for the virgin birth, what are the reasons? Well, the Bible doesn't actually say. So I do, ha I do have to exercise a little bit of caution in, 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 in arguing this way, but it seems like there are two very good reasons that emerge for why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Okay? So, since the union of a man and woman in the production of a child produces not only his material body, but also his immaterial properties. You know, when, when mom and dad come together, they not only produce a, a body, they actually produce a soul. Okay, so they produce not only the physical properties, but also the metaphysical ones. Okay, so any child born by natural procreation always results in a new person. Okay, so when mom and dad come together, when that egg and that sperm come together, they produce a new child, a new person, and that person inherits from his parents a sin nature. But since Christ already was a person and had personhood, he must have been clothed at his virgin conception with an impersonal humanity. Okay? It, it, mom and dad could not have produced a new person and God, the second person, attached himself to it. 
what would you have? You'd have some sort of a schizophrenic monstrosity, right? Okay, that you'd have two persons in one body. So there could not be a new person produced. So in order to preserve the singular personhood and the pre-existent personhood of the second person of the Trinity, there could be no new person produced uh, by a mom and a dad. And so what Mary produces here, I say here, is an impersonal uh, human body that Jesus inhabits. So with Chalcedon as our guide, Christ is one person with two natures. Okay? One person, he's got a divine nature that he brings from heaven with him, and he adopts then, he, he, he takes upon himself flesh, so a human nature. So he's one person with two natures. We, we mentioned before that uh, the, the, the virgin birth is not there because men are sinful and women are not. Nonetheless, there is probably something about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ that is preserved in the, in the, uh, in the virgin birth. Uh, I, I, this is part of my notes on man's, you know, Christ's sin and salvation. So I, I say, I, I sort of pulled that out. <laughs> um, the sin nature is passed from Adam through the, uh, through the human race by inheritance, by conception. It's very clear in Romans 5. Had Jesus been born by normal means, he would not only have had a dual personality, that was our first problem resolved by the virgin birth, but he would have had necessarily a sinful personality. Because if mom and dad, who are sinful, come together to produce a new soul, that soul is of necessity sinful as well. He would have inherited original sin and would himself have needed a savior. Okay, and so this is why he had to be born of a virgin. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Questions on that? Uh, sometimes that's misstated and uh, probably to our detriment if we aren't careful as to why the virgin birth is necessary. It's actually something, of a, again, it's, a, it's been sanitized, it's been cleaned up, but actually it caused, it caused Mary and Jesus a lot of trouble um, while, while Jesus was growing up. And so it does seem like there is some theological necessity here, and these are, I think, the best options for explaining that. So that's the method of incarnation. Now the purposes. Why is it that God took on flesh? Well, it, it, usually there's a, there's a quick answer that we give, well, so that he could die for people and save them. And that's going to be one of the reasons here. But I, I actually don't want to put that one first. Uh, we want to start here with this, something of a preliminary question, a speculative question here. Would God have taken on flesh? had Adam not sinned. Well, being a human is not inherently humiliating. Uh, Jesus remains human, as we're going to see here, for his entire, uh, for, for all of eternity future. So, it's not objectionable that God takes on human flesh. We observe further that immediately after the creation of Adam, the climax of each sinless day was an evening stroll in the garden by God with his people, a pre-incarnate form of Christ. But after Adam lost that fellowship, regenerate man has always craved this visible, tangible manifestation of God with whom to fellowship. Job wanted an arbitrator. We saw that in Job chapter 9. Philip requested Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. We, we want to see God. And what, what, what's Jesus' answer, incidentally? Yeah, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I, 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 I am... I am the visible representative of the Trinity. So if you've seen me, you've seen the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And the climax of human history is when God will dwell among us, be our God, and we will be his people. And I think we can logically conclude that since Jesus is the very best and greatest revelation of God, God still would have become human to reveal himself to us, live with us, receive the greatest possible glory from us, and so... I've concluded here that the first and greatest purpose of the Incarnation is not so much redemption, but rather to provide a visible and everlasting revelation of the invisible God. This is why he first showed up in the garden when there wasn't any sin or need for a Savior. And this is the way it's always going to be in eternity future. Once the sin problem has been exhausted, it's gone, sin is 
eliminated, we will still have this human representative. And it seems like that's something that God has always intended for his creation, that there can be this, you know, this fellowship that occurs between God and man. And this can only occur successfully uh, or fully if uh, God has a human form. Okay? And so John makes this clear. No one has seen God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's, that's why he came. He, he, he came to show us what God is like. John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We just looked at that one. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the ordinarily invisible God. So God's normally invisible, but Jesus makes him visible. And so this incarnation makes visible parameters of fellowship between creator and creature. How can we have fellowship with him? The fact of Christ's kingship. He says here in John 18, 37, I am a king. This is a conversation with Pontius Pilate just before his crucifixion. I am a king, and for this reason I was born and came into the world to testify that I am the king. Okay? So, so it's not just that he came in order to be the savior, but that he came in order to manifest his royal credentials. He came to prove he was the king. His incarnation made also visible his holiness and justice. I have come into the world, John 9 says, so that the blind will see and those who think they see will understand they're actually blind. So he is able to say, this is what sin looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. I am the arbiter of those things. But there are other reasons. Uh, the obvious one that comes to mind is to die for sinners and save from sin. Sin that binds sin consigns him to death, human death. Mankind can suffer this death himself, or he may become the beneficiary of a substitutionary death of another sinless human, because human death is that which is required. Justice could have it no other way. God, being neither human nor even, he doesn't even have a bodily form, he couldn't die. So man's case was grave. Grim, hopeless. And the only solution was for God to be enfleshed and to become a human. This is what Hebrews 2, I think, teaches. Since the children, people, humans, have flesh and blood, he too shared of their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why? So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. There was no other way. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to be the mediator of us who are also tempted. Now, the point here is that he had to be like his brothers doesn't mean that God was forced to do this against his will. God cannot be required by us to do anything at all. But once he decided that he was going to save some of these creatures, there was no other option. Okay, Because, Hebrews 10 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins in the in the, in, the, in, 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 the, in the eternal realm. Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. So we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all because the animals couldn't do it. Other statements of this purpose for the incarnation include this. Christ came to save his people from their sins. He came to redeem his people. He came to help his people. It says in John 12, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You know, let me avoid the cross? No. It's for this reason, this very reason, that I came. 1 John 3, Christ appeared that he might take away sins. And so this is probably the one that is most well represented, or the reason for the incarnation that is most well represented in the New Testament, but it's not the only reason. Thirdly here, to give men his own eternal life. His death uh, is not is not enough. You know, I, when I teach a class on soteriology, I always preface it by saying, is, is, it, is Jesus' death enough to get you into heaven? 
And if you're not careful, it's easy to say, well, yeah. And it's actually not quite true. The death of Christ keeps you out of hell, okay? It, it pays the penalty. It absorbs the penalty that should have been yours. But the only people who can get into heaven are those who are perfectly righteous. And so in order to get into heaven, you not only have to have the penalty paid in the death of Christ, but you also have to have his perfect righteousness imputed to your account so that you actually merit heaven. You know, now sometimes you say, well, we don't merit heaven. Well, actually we do. You either get to heaven by earning it yourself, which is impossible, or somebody else has to earn it for you. Okay, Jesus earned heaven for us through his life. And so he shares this life with us. So God not only re releases us from the penalty of the law, he also requires us to keep it perfectly, and only by imputing his righteousness to us uh, can we have that positive merit in order to get into heaven. I have an illustration here. Some states, even after a convicted felon has paid his debt to society in prison, he's not qualified to serve in public office, carry a gun, even vote. He's paid the penalty, right? He went to prison, paid his debt to society, right? Some sometimes say that. But some privileges in our world are extended only to those who have kept the law, okay? Only people who have kept the law are able to carry a gun, are allowed to vote and, and other things. Likewise, heaven is not merely for those whose debt has been paid, but to the, for those who have lived a perfectly obedient life. And so Jesus came that his sheep might have life and have it to the full. I am the living bread, he says, that comes down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread, who imbibes, who participates in his life of obedience, he'll live forevermore. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Fourthly here, Jesus became human in order to know human life for the inside by personal experience and thus to fulfill more perfectly his role within the triune God. Only a human could be a high priest. And that's what Hebrews 2 says. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in what he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So he is, is the only one who is qualified to represent us to God and represent God to us. And then furthermore, he's eligible to be the perfect judge. The Father, it says here, gives Jesus authority to judge because he is a son of man. That is to say, because he's a human. And it's, it's an interesting statement that the Father judges, does not judge. He gives this responsibility and privilege to his son because he's a human, because he is a son of man. Okay, And why is that significant? Well, because... Jesus understands humanity from the inside so that at the great judgment seat, if there would be a conversation allowed, and I don't know if there will be, if we would happen to say to Jesus, hey, I've sinned, yeah, but I'm only human. What's the response? Yeah, so am I. And the requirement is that you have to have been obedient and there's no excuse for you and so this is this so he is G jesus is the best possible judge of sinners because he was at all points tempted like as we are yet without sin and for that reason he is given that privilege of being the judge fifthly here he gives us an ideal and perfect example to believers i think oftentimes this runs to the top of the list in in Many of the conversations you'll have with people that you, you know, your neighbors and such, they, they think that Jesus lived a good life to give us a good example and, you know, we're supposed to follow in his steps and so we're just, he's, he's, a, he's a model of obedience and a, a model of good behavior. And he is that. Um, he's a lot more than that, but he is that. And so I want to put this on the list, but you can see here I put it number five because it's, it, I don't think it's, it, it takes precedence over these. 
Uh, he's an example of what we should be now. First John says this, The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And so how do you know what sanctification looks like? Jesus. He's your example. Peter, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay? So he gives us this example of what we should be now, and he also gives us a glimpse into what we shall be hereafter, right? We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Okay? And when we go through the doctrine of man uh, in, in systematic theology, um, we, we, we talk about, okay, what's the resurrected state going to be like? What are we going to be like in heaven? What's, what, what's, what's our situation going to be like? And the only answer we have is, well, this is the way Jesus' resurrection body was, and so we have an idea that that's maybe what we're going to be like. We, we don't have a lot of details, but that's, that's really the only details we have. This is the way Jesus was, and we know that we are going to be like him. Now, maybe not in every single way, but we get, we get our best sense of what the resurrection body is like by looking at what Jesus' resurrection body was like. So we get an example of how we should live now and what we can aspire to be hereafter. And then sixthly here, and this is the one that sort of, sort of is the stone in the shoe here, uh, because it's, it, these, this, is, this is the set of verses that doesn't show up at Christmas time uh, when, giving, when we give the reasons for the Incarnation. And I say here, to set in motion the long process of making things right. And here's, again, this, this is the verse that doesn't show up at Christmas, right? Don't suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth. It's like, <laughs> I did not come to bring peace, he says, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is why I have come. It's like, what? Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men upon whom his favor rests. So this qualifies who receives peace at the coming of Christ. And it's those upon whom his favor rests. So there is peace available, peace with God, that is available to us upon whom his favor rests. But this is not some sort of a global peace. It's, a, it's an individualized peace. John 9, I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and to those who think they see, to become blind. Acts 17, for a time God overlooked such ignorance, but now, in the aftermath of his incarnation and the resurrection in context, he's commanding all people everywhere to repent now because a judgment is coming. Okay? And so because the resurrection has occurred, because God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and has exalted him to his place as king and judge, repent because the judge is coming, okay? And so the arrival of Jesus Christ actually is not good news for everybody, right? It's actually Jesus starting to set all things right. And at the end, we're going to say this is, this is the way it ought to be. This, this is the best way it should be, that God will set all things right, and those who, have done, who, who are righteous will be rewarded, and those who are unrighteous will be punished. And we, we sometimes think that, well, we'll never applaud for that, but yeah, we will. We're all going to, we're all going to say that that's, the, right, that's the, good, the good and righteous conclusion of all things. And so that's one of the reasons he came as well, to set things straight. And that's ultimately good news, although it's got a, it's got a sharp edge to it, right? This incarnation, then, we find is permanent. He holds his priesthood permanently. And this God as mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, is. That is, he is forever. It's not just a past tense. It's not as though he was briefly the mediator, but he persists as the mediator between God and man. Any questions on the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The, yeah. The Jehovah's Witnesses like to use the Colossians, the firstborn. Firstborn. Firstborn of all creation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
there's a couple of options there, but probably we should think not in terms that he is the, the first created thing, but that is that he is preeminent in creation, uh, that he is first in rank over all that is created. It doesn't include him in the creation itself. I know it's in, I think it was uh, 49 Genesis, where Reuben was, he was taken the title of firstborn away, and he was, and it even said that he was no longer preeminent. Right. Yeah, so it's first in rank, not first. He's not the first created being, but he's the first in rank over creation because the very previous verse says, he is before all things and by him all things consist. He's he created all things. So, yeah. Good thoughts. But hopefully, hopefully as you get to, together for Christmas and you start thinking about what is meant here, uh, this actually hopefully it enriches a little bit. Uh, the way you think about what Christ accomplished in coming to earth as a man. Okay? And plus we won't sing that song around the, the piano either. Which? <laughs> okay, no. You know, that verse in, uh, in Job, I always love that when I read it. Uh-huh. You know, if yeah, it only is. there was a mediator. And now there is.